Well, good morning. You're all the bold people who burdened the rain today. So good morning. <clears throat> We're going to close with the message today. We decided to mix things up a little and leave you walking out here, hopefully encouraged, though I will be honest, when you're talking about discipline, it's never going to be easy, is it? It's like when your dad comes to you and says, now, son, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Well, that might be the case for today. I was uh, having some follow-up work to my tooth done, which I talked about last week, and I was in the community, and I met <coughs> a lady, excuse me, <coughs> at the office where I went, and uh, she hasn't been to her church in quite some time, and she knows some of you here, and she said, you know, maybe I should go, and I said, well, I just want to give you a heads up. This Sunday, we're talking about discipline. <laughs> I was hinting, you might want to wait till next Sunday. Just saying, you know, well, you're welcome anytime, but I just want to give you a heads up. And she said, you know, I could probably use that topic. I thought, wow, God can speak in anything, can't he? So my hope today is no matter where you are, whether you're online, you stayed home from the weather and you're watching this on, on our channel on YouTube, or whether you're here with us today, live, we just want to encourage you to dig in and be ready. So the heart of this comes as we watch these Israelites travel from Egypt, and instead of going across Highway 1 along the Mediterranean scene, right over to the Promised Land, they had to go down through the Sinai Peninsula, up to the deserts of Paran, and eventually they had to wander around in the desert 40 years, because as we will see in Numbers 13, they didn't follow God. They did not love or trust him yet. When we found our way through this journey, these Israelites were thirsty, and God would feed them miraculously. They were hungry, and God gave them something called manna, which means, what is it? Exactly. Five of you were listening. Good. So, um, manna is this bread from heaven that literally means, what is it? Because nobody knew what it was, but God fed them every day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner with the same meal. For how long? 40 years. And I don't care how good of a cook your wife is or how good you tell her she is, if you're smart, some of you are like, <clears throat> I can't laugh at that. You're giving me way, Pastor. Nobody wants to eat the same meal every day for 40 years. Nobody. And so when we get to Numbers 11, we find these Israelites complaining. And they're whining. But the thing is, as we learned last week, their whining isn't just, I don't like Disney World. This, about a month ago this year, we took our boys to uh, Disney. <clears throat> we're kind of at that margin where we have a nine-year-old, or sorry, an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, and a three-year-old. And we're like, we got this window of opportunity where the oldest will still enjoy it and the youngest is old enough to enjoy it. And so we went. It was a brutal trip. We traveled here. We flew there. We drove. It was just by the time we did Disney the first day, it was the hottest day. It was 90-something degrees. They were done. We took a day off in between to kind of stay and just enjoy. And then the next day, we went to Animal Kingdom, and they were literally done. They were complaining by 11 o'clock. No more manna. I said, <clears throat> you're going to eat it until you're sick and gag on it. I'm just kidding. In all seriousness, I'm looking at them. And here, I had a flashback at Disney World. I have a picture of me, and I thought about pulling it up and showing it to you, but I couldn't find it. I have a picture of me at Disney World. They didn't have an animal kingdom when I was a kid. When I, um, I'm sitting there, and I don't know how old I was, maybe 10 to 12 in that ballpark, and I'm literally slouched to the side, my arms crossed, and I'm frowning. And I remember that picture because my dad was livid. And I understand where he's coming from. Now I'm watching my kids complain. I'm like, do you know how much money I spent on this? You're going to like it. You're going to smile. And I don't care if you're faking it. <clears throat> well, that's not at all what's going on in Numbers 11. God is not fed up like a parent at Disney World. God is frustrated because, as he tells us in Numbers 11, they have rejected him. Not only have they rejected him, but it says they have returned to these false idols of Egypt. And see, this is huge for us to learn for today. As we talk about discipline, there is this direct correlation. I think uh, Robert Peterson, Dr. Peterson, says it really well. He explains it like this. 
God heard those complaints in the 11th chapter of Numbers. Sometimes the worst thing God can ever do is answer our prayers. In response to their wailing, he sent a wind that blew a massive migration of quail off course and into the desert. They fell by the millions and were clubbed to death by Israelites starved for meat. But even as they opened their mouths to devour the meat, they were eating death. The quail were carrying a deadly virus. Numbers 11.34 says, There they buried the people who had craved other food. How many saints go to an early grave because of their lusts for the pleasures of Egypt? Worse than that, how many Christians wither up and die spiritually because they turn away from Jesus to pursue junk food theology, empty calorie pleasures, and eye candy rather than soul food? See, the heart of discipline for your heavenly father has to do with separating you from anything that will destroy you. Now, if you're visiting with us today, again, this wouldn't be the message I would have chose for you to start with, but you're here, welcome. But you need to get this principle because this is the principle of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Here it is. You were made for worship. I don't know if you know that or not. When God made you, he made you for worship. And so there's this natural longing and propensity in your body to desire for something to fulfill it. Now, if we do not turn that desire to God, if we turn it to work or sports or video games or girls or guys or spouses or children or the way we look or the way others think of us, I mean, you could pick any number of things, turn to any of them, pick one, and you will find that it doesn't fulfill. And all of a sudden, you'll start worshiping that thing instead of God. And the danger in that is that it will lead you right to the pits of hell. And so your heavenly father, knowing that, loves you too much to let you just go there. Peter says it this way. This is Peter the apostle, you know. He says, people escape from the wickedness of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's easy in America where we don't really face a ton of persecution. It's easy to forget that we are actually living in a battlefield. Read Revelation sometime if you want to be confused, but just focus in, I believe it's on chapter 12 or 13. I believe it's specifically 13. But we find that there is a dragon, that's Satan, and he is literally devouring God's people. He hates God. There is a spiritual battle being fought. And so he's trying to devour, literally, the children of the great king. That's us. Now, he's already devoured those who are outside of God. And I realize if you're visiting with us today, you're like, that is so offensive. You just need to understand that if your heart is pursuing anything other than God, then what you're doing is you're drinking dirty water that cannot fulfill you. It cannot satisfy you. It was never meant to. It's not that person's fault. It's not that thing's fault. It's just that it was never built to do that. All of these things of life, whether they're houses or cards or food or money or success or jobs, all of these things were given to us to enjoy and to use for the glory of God. But they were never supposed to bring us that ultimate fulfillment, what we call worship. Now, in the Bible, this is described as 
idol worship or what we call idolatry. And most of us think of idolatry, we tend to think of little statues, and that's real. In fact, throughout history, even today in the world, and I know that we think this is weird. We're like, this doesn't actually happen today, does it? It does all over the world. In fact, when I was in Taiwan, I've told this story many times, I visited a Taoist temple that was on the hill above the orphanage where we brought our son home from, and you could hear them beating the drums day and night, all the time, there's beating these drums and holding worship services. So I asked the guy in the orphanage to take me one day, and we went up there, and they had these big statues of different things, but mainly of ancestors and the Taoist religion. And people would bow down to their ancient ancestors, asking them to bless them. And they had little statues of plates of food that the, the priests who worked the temple had to come and clear out the old food and put out new food all the time that people were bringing to sacrifice to these idols. And people would bring their house idols, these small idols they would carry in their arms, and they'd bring them to the bigger idols, and they would pray and ask this big statue to bless the little statue so they could take the little statue home to answer their prayers for any number of things, money, infertility, to give them a baby, to fix the problems in their home, to give them success, to bring them joy and blessing. And they would literally pray to these small idols, but realize the idol is nothing. It's wood or stone or gold or silver clay, whatever it is, but it represents a heart issue. And that heart issue exists in America even if the statue doesn't. The heart issue is the thing that we're pursuing as we've traded God for this thing. I'm not going to turn to God and ask him to continue to do this, to provide for me, to meet my need, to to, to bless me, to care for me, and if he doesn't, to trust him anyway. No, no, no. I'm going to give my all to this woman, to this man, to this job, to this thing. And I got to tell you, it's hard. Even as a Christian, there's propensity to wander. Read the rest of the quote, this quote I just gave you by Peter. It actually comes from uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. Here's the full quote. And when people escape from the wickedness of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and then get tangled up and enslaved by sin again. They're worse off than before. It would be better if they had never known the way to righteousness than to know it and then reject the command they were given to live a holy life. They prove the truth of this disgusting proverb. Yes, I added that word. A dog returns to its vomit. And another says... A washed pig returns to the mud. So that proverb, um, when I first read it, I was like, ew, and then I got a dog. (laughs) Now, I told my wife when we got married, I can clean up any any bodily function except that one, which was good because she can't do snot. So I'm like, we're money. Like, you will always do that, and I will sometimes do the other. It's perfect. It's a marriage made in heaven. When we had our dog, I'll never forget the day that he did that, and I didn't actually understand the proverb until I saw it. And in the last service, I'm not even joking, it's not bothering me now, in the last service, I started to get physically sick thinking about it. It is foul. I'll never forget one day, my wife, we had kids at this point, we were living here in Indiana, my wife took the kids and went out of town and my dog got really sick and I came home and he had thrown up. He lost it on both ends everywhere and I thought, that's it, we're selling the house, it's over. (laughs) In fact, maybe he will clean it up this time. Okay, moving on. It's a foul, foul, foul picture, isn't it? And that's the reason. Because what Peter is saying is there is a tendency to return to the very thing you walked away from when you came to Christ. When Christ redeemed you, he freed you, he bought you from the world, there's this thing in your heart that pulls, it tugs, it's a battle drawing you back to the other thing. 
This is exactly what Paul is talking about in Romans 7. If you've never read it, pick it up sometime. Where Paul says, the very thing I don't want to do is the very thing I do. And then he says, and the thing I do want to do is the very thing I don't do. And he goes on, he says, what a wretched man I am. Who can free me from this life of sin and death? Those two things are often connected in the Bible. Because if sin controls you, it will eventually lead to your death. And sadly enough, that can mean spiritually as well as physically. Yay, aren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> but see, this is the heart of discipline. This is the root of discipline from God. Here's the way Dr. Robert Peterson says it. God loves us best by removing the stuff we depend on most. Plagues come and we are stripped of money, family, friends, and health. The Nile turns to blood. The Red Sea is impassable. The waters at Marah are bitter. It is during those times that God reminds us that nothing in creation can save us. The same Nile that quenched our thirst also birthed a civilization, enslaved, and worked us to death. The same Nile that gave us pots full of meat was also the river where our babies were drowned. It suddenly dawns on us that things we get from creation exact a horrific cost for our children and us. Though the Nile may temporarily feed our bodies, it leaves our souls agonizingly thirsty and ravenously hungry. So, I told you the question last week, how do I know that God is disciplining me? How do I know? Well, let's dig in. There are two kinds of disciplines described in the Bible, two kinds. And I will get, the only two I know of, if there's more, I just haven't discovered them yet. So if you know others, feel free to send an email to a different staff member. Discipline number one. I'm joking. I'm joking. Discipline number one. The discipline of pain. The discipline of pain. Now, where I get this from is it's actually throughout the Bible, we see this here in the Exodus story, the Numbers story, as we watch these Israelites. There's difficulty, there's suffering, there's trouble, there's, uh, and it's intended for their good. But there's a specific New Testament text that we have to deal with as it relates to discipline, and that is Hebrews chapter 12. Take a look with me. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 1, it'll be on the screen, in the app, or if you want to open your Bible. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of death, let me try that again. Life of faith. Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially, especially the sin so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. And now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. And then you won't become weary and give up. Now, just stop there before we get to verse 4. If you've never studied the book of Hebrews, it's one of the best books in the world. We don't know who wrote it. It could have been Paul, could have been Barnabas, could have been Luke. We don't know. I taught on this a few years ago. If you go online, look up our old sermons, you'll find it in our series called Jesus Greater. Jesus Greater. And the whole goal of the book of Hebrews is the writer is writing to a Hebrew group of Christians. And life has gotten hard. If you're in the New Testament phase of, of Christianity, 
and you're a Hebrew person who has come to faith in Jesus Christ. You were cut off from the temple, which was the center of Jewish society. Many of them were cut off from their homes, their fathers, their mothers, even some of their children who did not believe Jesus was the Messiah would stop associating with them and even worse, sometimes turn them in to be imprisoned or beaten or killed. As Nero and later Domitian decided to persecute Christians by unspeakable evils. In fact, depending on exactly when Hebrews was written, it may have been written during this exact time of persecution by Nero. When he would often use Christians as the lamps for his parties, putting them on a post and lighting a fire around them while he uh, engaged in all kinds of debauchery. Yeah, it was a terrible time to be a Christian. And consequently, many of the Christians who were going through this were considering leaving Jesus to go back to what they had before. And so the writer of Hebrews is going through every chapter and saying, Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than the high priest. He is the permanent official sacrifice. He's greater than this. He's greater than that. Where else are you going to go to find life is the point. And when we get to the verses right before this, we're basically told to consider this great cloud of witnesses. And he goes through all of these heroes of the faith. And look at Isaiah and look at Moses and look at Elijah and look at, and he just goes through one after another, after another, and after another. And all the difficulty they face. So when we get to chapter 12, he gets to the greatest hero who's greater than all of them. And he says, look, all of those heroes, in essence, have failed at some point or another. It's kind of like when you're driving and the cop finally pulls you over. You know what I mean? And he's like, do you know how fast you were going? You're like, yeah, but if you just saw the last hundred. <laughs> I mean, and you know you're guilty, right? Even if that time you're like, dude, I was doing two over. There's a party that goes, yeah, but yesterday I was doing 30. And Jesus, his donkey never once broke the speed limit. I don't even know if that's possible. Apparently, it was a really flat joke. It was like, <laughs> Jesus never once sinned. And yet, the writer of Hebrews is trying to say, but look at everything he went through. His brothers didn't even believe in him at first. At some point, it's possible his dad died because he completely disappears from the story. The people he came to save, according to John 1, turned on him. One of those closest to him, Judas, betrays him for 30 pieces of silver. And now he's going to go to the cross, literally having done nothing wrong, and he's going to suffer. And the important part of that is twofold. Number one, realize the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the punishment of God, the scourging of God has been satisfied. Remember that passage in Romans 7 that Paul was talking about with Paul? In the first part of Romans 7, Paul is lamenting, what am I going to do? I'm stuck. I can't stop. I never seem to do the good I want. I always do the evil I don't want. Who's going to save me? And I don't remember the exact verse, but about three-fourths of the way through Romans 7, Paul changes the argument. And instead, see, in the first three-fourths or so, 70% of that text, he's lamenting. I'm fighting a battle. I can't win. I just keep losing. And then in the last few verses, he says, but now I'm engaged in a battle that's already been won. Praise be to God for Jesus Christ, which works him all the way to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, I'm at peace because I'm secured in Christ. So therefore, the, the writer of Hebrews is arguing this. Don't miss it. Be like Jesus in the midst of your suffering. 
Part of the disciplinary hand of God in your life is when you go through hardships, it's his hand disciplining you, which brings up a great question we don't have time for today. So did God cause this? Did others cause this? Did I cause this? And the answer simply is yes, although it's not yes. That doesn't mean that God is causing evil things to happen or making you sick or whatever it is you're going through right now. The point is to change your attitude. God didn't make your spouse cheat on you. God didn't make your child rebel. God didn't make somebody greedily steal lots of money and you lost your job or a boss be overbearing and demanding because he's got a miserable home life or whatever it is. But God won't waste it either. And so the writer of Hebrews is encouraging the people to see all of the hardship. Is God persecuting his own? Of course not. But rather than be angry and quit Look at it all as an opportunity for growth. In fact, he goes on to verse 4. He says, after all, you have not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. Notice he said earlier, so let's strip off, throw off everything that's weighing us down. That thing weighing you down might be your sin. That thing weighing you down might be the sin, the bitterness, the unforgiveness, the hurt of others. Whatever it is, that's the point. It's not any one thing. Whatever it is that's keeping you from hindering you from running after God, see it all as a discipline from your heavenly Father who is trying to shape you and create in you something new and just run after him. Run after him. In fact, James, again, this is now, this is the half-brother of Jesus. They both have Mary as their mother. He comes to faith in Jesus later as Savior. He's one of the leaders in the New Testament church, but he says this, chapter 1, verse 2. And dear brothers and sisters, When troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. This guy is crazy. What? How? Verse 3. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing what? I mean, this difficult season you're going through, wherever it is, however it is, you got there. It is a gift for the Lord for you. It is perfectly crafted by your enemy to destroy you. But it is perfectly seized by your Savior to redeem you. God never loses the war. The question is, will you allow the perfecting pain of life to finish its work? That's why the writer in Hebrews goes on and he says in chapter 12, verse 11, no discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. Is it? No, it's painful. But afterwards, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. So our response to this discipline of pain is to change our attitude. Instead of trying to get out of it, oh, what do I have to do? What do I got to learn, God, so you'll make it go away? No, no, no. What you're trying to learn is endurance. What you're trying to learn is character. What you're trying to learn is change. Which brings us to discipline number two. And I wish I had more time. I don't have more time, so I'm going to go quickly. Discipline number two is the discipline of conviction. The discipline of conviction. Now, I would break this down into two categories. Two categories. Because conviction comes in two different ways. The first way is when God literally steps back and says, you want it, have it but to have everything that comes with it. We see this in Romans chapter one when Paul writes and he says, um, God handed them over to their evil desires. 
And the consequence of that is that they pay the due penalty in their own bodies. In that particular text, Paul is talking a lot about sexual sin, and he's probably talking about some form of STI or STD, depending on which culture you live in, what term you use. He may be talking about the pain that comes from the divorce and the broken relationships that come. But when he gets into Romans chapter 2, he looks at the church themselves and says, and you be careful not to point a finger at them because you're no better. Which he gets into Romans chapter 3 when he says, and we have all sinned, including Paul and Matt Nickerson, and fallen short of the glory of God. The point of all of that is when God steps back and says, fine, you want to run after these things instead of me, have it. Have it, but have it everything, everything that comes with it. Go ahead. Go ahead. In fact, when Paul's addressing this in another book called Corinthians, and uh, I believe it's 1 Corinthians chapter 5, might be 2 Corinthians 5, but I think it's 1 Corinthians 5, there's a son who is sleeping with his dad's wife. Now, it's probably not his mom. It's probably like his stepmom or whatever. Maybe his mom died and his, mom re- his dad remarried. We don't know. But he's doing it and he's bragging about it and the church is rallying around him going, isn't grace awesome? High five, dude. Yeah. And that's pretty much what the culture in Corinth is saying. Like the culture in Corinth, one of the most immoral cultures in the history of the world. There's all kinds of stuff I could teach you on the way they worshiped false gods and they'd have temple prostitutes and all this stuff going on that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 6. But basically he looks at the church of Corinth and he's like, are you crazy? Like what's wrong with you people? Even the world look at this dude and say, now that's weird. That's just weird. There's just no getting around it. That's weird. And so Paul tells the church in Corinth, discipline this man. I want you to remove him. This is called excommunication. I want you to remove him from your fellowship. And the phrase he uses is, I want you to hand him over to Satan. What? Now, Paul, that doesn't sound very loving or encouraging or grace-filled. No, it's tremendously grace-filled. Because the hope is this man will be removed from the body that provides and loves and cares the way God created the church to do that. And that he will carry the full weight of his choices. And as he does, he will realize that these things provide no hope, no pleasure, no lasting joy. And the goal then is on the day that Christ returns, he'll be able to celebrate God. He'll be able to celebrate Christ because he will have turned back. So this discipline of conviction is feeling the full weight of his consequences. That's part A. Part B, see, there's, there's a step long before that one, and it shows up here in Hebrews chapter 12. Take a look at me, verse 5. And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline, and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. Eh, that doesn't sound like fun at all. Well, a few things. This is a quote Um, of a proverb and the quote is interesting in that we have two versions of the old testament a hebrew version and a greek version the greek version is what we call the septuagint we believe it came from daniel and uh, meshach shadrach and abednego when they were in captivity and they didn't have a copy of god's word the holy spirit gave them and it was amazing they remembered almost the entire thing and they rewrote it all in greek but it's not in the hebrew translations this word punish In verse 6, keep verse 6 up there. This word punish actually is better translated as scourge or scourge. You'll see that in what's called the New American Standard Bible, the NASB. It is like the most accurate word-for-word translation, and it uses that word. Others don't know what to do with it, so they kind of pick different words. But the word is the same word used to describe what Jesus went through before he was crucified. He was scourged. Literally, a cat of nine tails with a whip to the back. Well, has God ever done that to you? But yes and no. 
Put it in context. Remember, we were just encouraged by the Hebrew writer to consider and to look at our pain in the same way Jesus did. He's taking you right back to the moment of the cross. He's using another passage in the Old Testament that points us to Jesus to say, now when you're going through a hard time, consider this as God leading you through it. He's taking you through the same thing he took Jesus through. Well, did Jesus deserve punishment? Well, no, he took your punishment on the cross. So then what do we do with all this? Well, the answer is right there at verse 5. Go back to verse 5. Have you forgotten the encouraging words God, what, spoke to you? Now, don't miss this. Because the beauty of Hebrews chapter 12 here is that the major, the major way that God brings conviction is through his words. And when words don't always get it done, or when life is hard, we're then encouraged to view all pain as an opportunity. But the major way that God gets through to you and the major way he gets through to me is through his words. When was the last time you were driving down the road and something came on the radio and you felt as if God spoke to you? How about a time, this happens to me, you'll be sitting across the table from somebody talking and they're saying something and they have absolutely no idea and it's like convicting you to your core and you're like, oh man, that was for me. Or how about this? I get emails all the time from, from people here who go online like in other countries or here in the church and they're like, wow, it's like nobody else was in the room and you were talking to me. Like, I don't know. Like some of these people are like, I've never met you in my life. You realize that's not me, right? Like I don't have that ability. But God speaks his words and he brings them to you to encourage you and challenge you and shape you. And it's a warning. It's like his precursor to, to physical discipline if he needs to. Because he loves you too much to let you keep going down this road of pursuing something other than him. Which is why Paul writes later, today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart, but instead respond to him. How many times have you sat here and heard God tell you, it's time, it's time, it's time to surrender, it's time to come to him, it's time to be united with him at baptism, it's time to turn from this sin, it's time to confess this, it's time, it's time. So the worst thing that God could do would say, okay, no more talking. <laughs> You're now going to feel the weight of this. I'm going to let you have this, but you get everything that comes with it. Verse 7. As you endure the divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Whoever heard of a child outside of America who's never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate and are not really his children at all. That is a terrifying statement, guys. Realize what he just said. If you have never heard God convict you, if you have never been convicted by a sermon, a message, a song, a conversation, a scripture, a text. If you have never felt the weight of tough times. Then maybe it's because you're not in the family of God. And the right response to that should be, not be, well then fine, I don't want to be in your family. It should be, then God forgive me because I need you. In other words, what the writer is saying is, rather than be mad at God and say, I quit, I give up, I walk away. Instead of that, instead look to him and say, you know what, God, there's something you want to do in me, and I need you to do it. 
So convict me, bring about righteousness, do whatever you need to do, but I'm with you to the end. I'm not quitting. I will not quit. I will not quit. <clears throat> you know, the only time outside, I believe it is the Gospels, if I'm saying this right, I learned this from John Piper. The only time outside the Gospels the phrase, hand them over to Satan is used, is in the book of Job. <laughs> At the end of Job, after God's perfecting pain, See, Satan went and did a terrible work on Job, but God used every single one of it to perfect Job, to bring him to a deeper knowledge and trust and understanding. We're told all throughout the beginning of Job that Job was a good dude. It's not that he deserved this. It's that God still used pain to bring about a better Job. And that's the point. That's the goal of this whole process. Take a look. John chapter 16, verse 7. Jesus says, in fact, it is best for you that I go away because if I don't, the advocate won't come. But if I do go away, I will send him to you. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And he says, and when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. So what is Jesus telling us? The role of the Holy Spirit is to discipline you through conviction. He's going to make you understand what you're doing is wrong. He's going to bring about this, this desire for righteousness so that you can be saved by Christ and his blood for the day of judgment. Now, I could stop right here, but I would leave all of you feeling really not good. And it's not that some of you don't need to, some of you honestly just need to feel the weight of this. I remember one Christian counselor told me he was in a meeting with a guy who was confessing all the sin and the evil that he had done, and he just felt bad for the guy. He was weeping, and he wanted to reach over and touch him on the shoulder and just relieve all the burden, and he said he felt God speak as clearly as he's ever felt him speak. He said, don't you dare touch him right now. I need him to feel the weight of what he's done, or he will not change. And he literally said, I was leaning forward to put my arm on his shoulder and pray over him, and I just pulled my hand back, and I just let him cry. Now, listen, some of you may need that kind of discipline from God right now and you may be feeling it and hearing it but I want you to understand because depending on your parental perspective the way you grew up you may see discipline as God hurting you you may see discipline as God punishing you you may see discipline as God uh, removing himself from you Instead of what it really is, the way Hebrews is encouraging us, and that is God engaging us. And here's how I want you to see it. I want to show it to you in a, in a practical example, a guy named Peter, that guy we quoted earlier. Peter is told by Jesus that he's going to betray him three times before the rooster crows. I want to show you that actual moment. Take a look. Luke chapter 22, verse 61 and 62 says this. At that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Suddenly, the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Here's the words from Jesus. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And Peter left the courtyard, what? Weeping bitterly. See, the goal here is that Peter understood that what he did was evil. In his moment when Jesus needed him most, Peter denied him. Nope, don't believe him. I don't know who he is. I don't know what you're talking about. Peter was in self-preservation mode. And it resulted, as the Holy Spirit convicted Peter, it resulted in him understanding. And what we have is repentance. Now, Peter walks around for some time ashamed of what he did. He doesn't understand what the cross and the resurrection means yet. 
See, we have the benefit of studying Peter's story and understanding more about it. Peter just thinks, I blew it. I absolutely blew it. I'm, I can't believe I blew it. I said I would never do this, but he told me I would do it, and I did it. And he feels terrible. He feels terrible. That's inner repentance. That's his desire him to be different. And see, that's the goal. The goal of discipline is a change of heart and attitude. The goal of discipline is not punishment. I want you to see this. The goal of discipline is a change of heart and attitude. It is not punishment. You can put up the next one. There you go. It is not punishment. Parents. Parents, do you understand what I'm saying right now? When your child is not acting appropriately, not that, you know, anybody's kids in here ever do that. The goal is not to hurt them. The goal is not to ostracize them. The goal is not to belittle them or beat them into submission. The goal is to bring about a change of heart and attitude. And so you are their spiritual leader and you are ministering to them to lead them to that place. How do I know? Well, take a look. 1 John chapter 4, verse 17 and 18. John writes it this way. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has what? No fear. Because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishments. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. Okay. I want to make this between you and God, and then I want to help parents a little bit. Again, in September, we'll do a parenting seminar. I will dig as deep as I possibly can in a seminar to help you through this. But let me give you some nuggets of wisdom. If you are viewing anything I've said today through the lens of God hates me and wants to crush me, then you don't understand the cross, and we want to explain it to you today. Today. We would love to take you backstage at the end of the service. In fact, in just a few minutes, when I'm sending everybody that way, you go this way. And we have people back there who would love to talk to you or at least get your contact information to follow up with you depending on how long the conversation is. If you believe that God is hurting you just to hurt you, then you do not understand him. Parents, if your kids are afraid of you, then you have not succeeded in disciplining them. Are you with me? Dads, this is especially you. If you believe the way to get your kids in line is to threaten or to hurt, then you do not understand the heart of your heavenly father. And it's time for you to repent and learn a better way. And there are plenty of people who could teach you a better way. It's not that pain isn't a part of life, but guess what? Making a child do what he's supposed to do is a pain too. Forcing a child to eat the meal that you cooked, even if it's at breakfast cold the next day, is a form of punishment that doesn't require you to whip out the belt and create blisters or wounds. There are lots of ways that God grows you and teaches you, lots of them, that don't require physical pain. Remember, the writer in Hebrews isn't saying God did this. The writer in Hebrews is saying, and when you're going through whatever life brings it, you just consider going through it the way that Jesus went through it. See, so read that the right way, and it changes the way you interpret it. And here what we learn is there is nothing in God this should create fear in us. And if you have fear of God, then you do not understand that he is a perfect father who wants desperately for you to love him, trust him, and come to him. 
That doesn't mean he's okay with sin. No, he hates sin so much he killed his son for it. It just means that he loves you perfectly. You have nothing to fear when you come to him. So don't stay away from him. Don't run away from him. Don't withdraw from him. Run right into his throne room and say, here, here's what I did. The same author, John, he writes, and if we confess our sins, he is faithful and will forgive us. So if the goal of discipline is to change a heart, change your attitude, then the fruit, the fruit of discipline is this. It's a life lived well. A life lived well. Let's come back to that story of Peter again, all right? I want to show you this prophecy of Jesus that Peter is going to fail and then how Jesus handles it. Luke chapter 22, verse 31. He says, Simon, Simon, that's Peter's name. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail so that when you have repented and turned to me again, Strengthen your brothers. You get this? I want you to understand exactly what happened here. Peter's bold. In fact, the next few verses, you can read for yourself the next couple verses. Peter's like, no way, not me. And Jesus says, yes, you. Before today's over, the rooster crows three times, you will deny me three times. No, not happening. Uh Uh-uh, not me. Yeah, yes, you. No, this will be the first time you're ever wrong, Jesus. Not going to happen. Not going to do it. I won't do it. So Jesus looking at Peter and says, you're going to fail me today. And Peter, once you realized you failed and you repented, you came back, I want you to get back to work. Now, Peter couldn't have even received that message. Go read the rest of the gospel stories. They're at the end, the last few chapters of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and just see how Peter does. He's not doing well. He's wallowing in misery. Oh, I'm such a failure. I did it again. His shame is screaming. I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. The Father is going to, you know, how's he ever going to use me? I blew it. I had this great opportunity to love my God and show it, and I can't believe it. I can't believe it. And you get to John chapter 21. And Jesus meets Peter on a shore. And he sits and he eats fish with Peter again. Go back to Peter's story. He was a fisherman before he met Jesus. I don't think that's an accident. Jesus is revealing one of Peter's idols. And he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? I believe Jesus. We don't know, but I believe Jesus is looking at the fish. Do you love me more than these fish? Peter went back to fishing. It's all he ever knew. See, when he thought he blew it so much for God that God couldn't love him or use him again, he went back to what he always knew. He went back to Egypt. Peter, do you love me more than these? And Lord, you know that I love you. Then go feed my sheep. Peter, do you really, really love me more than these? Lord, you know that I love you. You know I do. Peter, go feed my lambs. One more time. Peter, Peter, do you really love me more than this? Am I really the most important thing in your life? Lord, you know above all, you know you, of all people, know that I love you. They get back to work, Peter. Did Jesus belittle him? Did Jesus call him names like Nancy? Did Jesus hurt him? No. Did Jesus even shame him? (sighs) I told you you were going to do it, dude. I knew it. I'm always right. You know that, right, Peter? He didn't even mention it. He looks right at Peter and says, Peter, I forgave you. I forgave you when I rose on that third day. That's when I forgave you. 
Peter, you already showed me that you were repentant when you wept bitterly and you wanted to change. So Peter, it's time to get to work. Stop wallowing in your shame. Stop wallowing in your misery. You have felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit and it's time to go do something about it. What about you? So some of you sitting here today are clearly hearing the Holy Spirit. If God is disciplining you, consider it a great opportunity to grow. And I want to leave you with this challenge. Again, some of you, you need to respond in faith or baptism or getting help. And as everybody's going that way, I want you to go this way under that screen, okay? But this is it. I'm going to pray and we're done. And as you leave here today, I want you to be encouraged that your heavenly father loves you and he has a mission for you. And as long as you're sitting on the sidelines in shame about what you did or what you've done, even as early as yesterday, then the enemy keeps winning. It's not that he can win the war. The war has been won. It's that he's going to keep winning the battle for the lives of your children or your spouses or your parents or your neighbors or the kids at your school or the people at your workplace because you're sitting on the sideline wallowing in sin and shame instead of giving it to God and Christ on the cross and saying, all right, God, I, here I am. Send me. What do you need? And as you leave here today, we have tables set up all over in that room out there. Why let the enemy win one more battle? Leave here today and say, I'm going to join the fight and do something about it. Let me pray over you. Father in heaven, God, this is not an easy message. It's been kicking my hiney for two weeks, and I thank you for that because that's the conviction of the Spirit in me. Father, I know the things you've been saying to me to do to be a better husband and a better father. Now, Father, I pray that you would give me and every man and woman in here of any age the strength to walk out of here, walking in you, living in mercy, repenting of the things we need to change. God, if there's anybody in here who's in the midst of a stronghold, the enemy just has them not just wanting to go back to Egypt, but running back to Egypt, then God, I pray right now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would get their attention, turn them around, and show them the promised land again. Father, I pray right now that you would raise up an army of Kingsway people when they leave here today. They don't just hop in their cars and can't wait to go to lunch and go eat and get out into the weather, whatever, Father. I just pray, God, that you would move and stir the people would leave here today knowing that you want to use them, that you've placed their, your spirit in them for that purpose, and then as they leave here today, they would join the fight to destroy the enemy here at Kingsway. And God, lastly, I pray for those who are far from you who have never taken the first step of faith. They've never joined you in baptism. And God, I pray that today would be their day. They would not wait one more minute. And may we all celebrate those decisions next week. Thank you, God, for loving us like a father in Jesus' name. Amen.